Good morning, good morning. I see a lot of first service faces that just couldn't make it. <laughs> hey, it makes second service more exciting. More, more people here. All right. Good morning. Good to see everybody. If you're new with us, welcome. So, you all know that last week we finished our study in the Gospel of John, which was a verse-by-verse study, which is the uh, standard style of teaching we do here at Calvary Chapel. This morning I'd like to start a new study in a new book, but I'd like to do it differently than any other study I've ever ever done here at Calvary. Instead of going verse by verse, I'd like to do a topical study through an entire book of the New Testament. Now, every book in the New Testament has a theme. This is especially true of the uh, epistles. And I prayed about this, and I thought it might be beneficial to build a series of messages around the main theme of the epistle to the Philippians, which is joy. Joy. But when you realize that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome, well, it gives us a deeper appreciation for the theme. I mean, it's easy to be joyful when you're in the midst of blessings, but when you find yourself joyful in the midst of adversity and sufferings, well, that's something else entirely. Look, there has never been a time in my life when Christians needed, need to be encouraged and uplifted more than they do right now in our nation's history. And part of that is being reminded that joy is the birthright of every child of God. A depressed Christian is really an oxymoron, kind of like jumbo shrimp <laughs> or civil servant. Now, I would just say this, hopelessness and depression come from the devil, whereas hope and joy come from knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into this incredible epistle, let me give you some some background. The epistle to the Philippians is one of four epistles that Paul wrote from prison in Rome, where he spent two years waiting to stand before Caesar to present his case. If you read the book of Acts, and of course I know all you have, um, at one point Paul was a political pawn, uh, a political prisoner uh, there, the governors of the region, Caesarea and so on, um, had Paul uh, as a prisoner uh, hoping to get, I don't know, a kickback, some kind of a bribe um, from him. And Paul knew he was being used. And at one point, he had had enough and said, look, um, I appeal my case before Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he had that right. He could appeal his case before Caesar. And so the governor had no other alternative but to send him uh, to to stand before Caesar. You can read about the journey in the book of Acts. Uh, He gets out there, and now he is placed under house arrest because uh, it's going to take time to see Caesar. He was a busy guy, and it wound up taking Paul two years before he actually stood before Caesar to present his case. But he was uh, very um, judicious about his time, and so Paul used it quite wisely. He discipled people. He shared the gospel with others. 
And he wrote four epistles, four epistles um, that have come to be known as the prison epistles. And uh, while he was there early on, he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, probably all around the same time, early in AD 60. And it appears that he then wrote Philippians later, near the end of 61 AD. And so Paul wrote Philippians while waiting to stand trial, a trial that could very well have ended in his execution. And yet the theme of this epistle is joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. And the reason Philippians is called the epistle of joy is because Paul uses the word joy and rejoice 16 times in these four chapters. Which begs the question, how was it that Paul could have so much joy while in such a terrible place with his very life on the line? Well, he had a secret, Paul did. Uh, a secret that he had learned and honed over the years he had been a Christian. It's a secret that he shares with the Philippian Christians, and now it's a secret that we have and we're going to learn about. I'll, I'll give you a little heads up, no pun intended. It has to do with your mind. Not in a weird metaphysical kind of way. It has to do with what you allow to dominate your thinking. Very simply, Paul's secret was that he had learned to fill his mind with Jesus. He said, well, what exactly does that mean, though? We're going to get into it. But we see this clearly in the first chapter alone where Paul uses Christ or Jesus Christ, 17 times, which figures out to more than once every two verses. And so even though Paul talks about joy quite a bit in this epistle, he talks about Jesus more. And in so doing, he reveals to us the secret of joy in the life of the child of God. It is to have our mind focused on Jesus. Jesus was the reason Paul had so much joy in the midst of his difficult circumstances. And guys, Jesus is the reason, the secret to us having joy in our circumstances as well. Listen, no matter how difficult those circumstances can sometimes be, nobody's exempt. Nobody can say, well, okay, joy for him or joy for her, but not for me, not with what I'm going through. It doesn't work like that. If you're facing death, I think that's pretty serious. You can have death in that situation. I think you had a joy in any situation. One author put it rightly. He said, he pointed out, he said, and I quote, How much Christians need to learn this? There is so much bickering in Christian circles, so much complaining and so much unhappiness. This was never meant to be. Christians were meant to be filled with love and joy and peace. In short, with all the virtues that are the result of the life of Christ within the Christian. To be filled with Christ is the secret of real Christian living. It is the secret of true joy, end quote. So once again, the secret of having joy in the Christian life, along with all the other virtues that God has promised us that are ours in Christ, we're focusing on joy because that's the theme of the epistle to the Philippians, but the secret of having joined the Christian life starts in the mind with the way you think. But that really shouldn't surprise us because everything in the Christian life starts in the mind. 
Now you say, well, what are you talking? You're starting to scare me now. You're sure this isn't metaphysical stuff? Because it sounds like you're going there. I'm not going there. All right. But what does it mean? What are we talking about? All right. The first place the gospel takes up residence, think about it, is in your mind. After the gospel is presented to a person, it lodges in their mind where it is, you know, we would say chewed on, mulled over, where the person evaluates the validity of what they've just heard, or in the case of a gospel track, what they just read. At some point, the gospel message is either believed or rejected. If it is believed in the mind, it is then brought into the heart where it is made a part of a person's core convictions. Understand, core convictions are not just beliefs, they are passionate beliefs. The kind of beliefs that change a person's life, the kind of convictions that people are willing to die for. There's a lot of things we believe in our heads we're not willing to die for. They're true, they're just not core convictions. They don't change our life in any way, right? Telling first service, I believe that pizza's good. I'm not going to die for pizza. Some might, I won't. But my belief in Jesus Christ is one of my core convictions. It's something I would die for. I would die for Jesus by God's grace if the ever was presented to me to either uh, stand up for him or deny him. By God's grace, I would stand up and die for him. Now, we're not the only ones that would do that, by the way. We're not the only ones who would die for what we believe. There's many Muslim young men who have died over the centuries for Islam. They think Islam is truth. We know it's a lie. But they have been willing to die for what they believe. More recently, a lot of young men and women have been willing to die for communism. They really believe that is the way the world should live. So we're not the only ones who would die for what we believe. But I want to focus a little more on this idea of the, of the mind and the heart. Think of it this way. The mind is the narthex, you might say. The entryway leading into the heart. You know, many churches, especially older churches, were built with a narthex. What's a narthex? It's, a, it's an inside patio or porch that you enter into from the street and then once in the narthex, you enter into the main sanctuary of the church. The mind is like an narthex that is entered into through two primary entry points, the eyes and the ears. However, I'll warn you, there are other ways for spirit beings to enter the mind, through things like hallucinogenic drugs like LSD, but then there are other metaphysical portals into the mind. These are the ones Satan likes to use quite a bit and is using more and more today probably than ever before in our nation's history. They're through things like transcendental meditation, TM, or Ouija boards, visualization, tarot cards, and contemplative prayer, just to name a, a few of these portals that demons will use to get into a person's mind, into their thinking. Now, for many, just like we Christians have received the gospel into our minds and then brought it into our hearts where it become, it's become a passionate belief of ours, a core uh, belief, 
so too there are many other people today who are doing the same thing exactly with the occult, with witchcraft, and other demonic belief systems. Let me stop and say this. And this is all by way of introduction into our study in Philippians, which focuses on the mind if you're going to know true joy on a regular basis. But let me stop and say this. You may never have thought about this, but the mind is ground zero for spiritual warfare. The mind is ground zero for spiritual warfare. God wants to get a hold of a person's thinking so that, first of all, he can save them. And then secondly, so that he can sanctify them, make them more like Christ every day. And the devil wants to control their thinking to keep them away from God and living in sin to ultimately destroy them. God wants to save them and sanctify them. The devil wants to destroy them in hell forever. Now, Paul the Apostle had something important to say on this subject that we really need to understand. So turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, I just want to read verse 17. Keep your finger here. We're going to come back to this chapter in Ephesians. But um, Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul said, This I say, Therefore, there, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk. In other words, live. You should no longer live as the rest of the Gentiles. He's talking about unbelievers. That you should no longer live as the rest of the Gentiles, unbelievers, live, walk, in the futility of their mind. Here Paul is admonishing believers to stop living the old life of sin like unbelievers who do so because of the futility of their mind and to start living, you Christians in Ephesus and all of us, of course, and and to start living new lives of holiness and purity in God. The The phrase futility of their mind means empty headedness of worldly thinking the bible teaches that the power to live a changed life comes from the holy spirit working within working through i should say a changed or a clean heart now david prayed create in me a clean heart who oh god And David prayed this after he had sinned with Bathsheba. But a year later, he writes Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, uh, where he's talking about this experience. And I believe it's Psalm 51 that we're talking about right here. But David has been out of fellowship for about a year, miserable time for him in his life. He talks about that, how he was dry spiritually and dry emotionally and just suffering. And eventually he broke and he repents. And he says, he pleads, Lord, please create in me a clean heart. I don't have the ability to create in me a clean heart. And that's very true. We don't have the power to change our hearts. But we do have the power to change our minds. It's called repentance. The Greek word for repent is metanoia, which literally means to have a change of mind. 
If I stop thinking that certain behaviors that God condemns in his word are okay to do, in other words, if I stop justifying sinful activities and bad habits, if I change my mind about the way I'm living and cry out to God for his help and strength, listen, if I change my mind through repentance, God will change my heart through the new birth. And a changed heart always leads to a changed life. Again, I just felt it necessary in this first introductory message to the book of Philippians to talk about the mind and how important it is in our Christian lives because Satan has been targeting the mind since man has walked on the face of the earth. We didn't realize it at the time, but all the years we lived before we became Christians, the devil was working in our minds. He was trying to get us to think the way he wanted us to think. And he's the God of this world. So he orchestrated everything around us to appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It was all preaching a message. We didn't know it. I know I certainly didn't know it. I didn't know that the things I believed in and held to and uh, and, and, and lived out in my life, so many of that was, so much of that was the devil. Trying to keep me away from God, trying to get me to satisfy the desires of my fallen nature, to do what pleased me. The heck with everybody else. I'm the most important person in the world, I thought at that time. This is what we were, we are, we're living with before we got saved. And then we... The Holy Spirit began to work on us and began to draw us to Jesus. He opened our eyes. He showed us his truth. The light dawned and we fell on our faces and received Christ. And at that moment, a miracle took place. We were now children of God. Let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me just go back a little bit. Paul is telling us here in Ephesians 4 that the main difference between Christians and non-Christians, and yes, I realize Christians have the Holy Spirit and non-Christians do not. That's the main difference. But in, in addition to that, the main difference between Christians and non-Christians is in the way they think. Once a person repents, in other words, has a change of mind, and receive Jesus as their Savior, they become a new creation, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17. And instantly receive a new nature. Or in other words, a new heart. But we still have the old heart. We still have the old nature, don't we? That nature we inherited from Adam. It's still there. And now there's a war that's taking place. Galatians 5.16 and 17, right? There's a war that's going on. We never had a war before. We never fought with, you know, we wanted to do something, we did it. Um, you know, if I had to step on somebody to get ahead, you know what? Tough luck. That's what you do. Because I'm the only one that matters. Right? Didn't we think like that? Some of you were nicer than me, I'm sure. Some of you didn't think like that. I did. But now we have these two hearts, these two natures, one fallen, one old, one new. 
And which one is going to control our lives, guys, is going to depend on how we think. How we think. Even as Solomon said in Proverbs 23, verse 7, As a man uh, thinks within himself, and here the mind is in view, as a man thinks within himself, so is he. And that is why we are commanded as Christians to stop thinking like the world and to start thinking like the redeemed children of God we now are in Christ. You don't have to. So a lot of folks who are Christians don't think like Jesus thinks. They think more like the world thinks still. The Bible calls them carnal Christians. But we're not supposed to do that. We have been redeemed. And for all the years we were brainwashed by the devil, that has to end now. And that's where the Bible says, Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed any longer to this world, its attitudes, its actions, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me read it to you out of the NLT, Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And still in Ephesians chapter 4, look at verses 21 to 23. And again, I'll read it to you out of the NLT. Where Paul said, Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, renew your thoughts and attitudes. Guys, the main way our thoughts are renewed or changed as Christians is by listening to, reading, studying, and meditating on the Word of God. I'm sure you all know Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11, where David said, How can a young man, a young woman, cleanse their way by taking heed according to your word? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word teaches us that godly living, listen, always flows from godly thinking which is only possible by the renewing of your mind through the Word of God. I'm absolutely convinced that the reason so many Christians are living worldly lives and in the process forfeiting joy, peace, and everything else God wants to give you, everything that's your birthright in Christ, you jettison, you forfeit, not forever, but during the time you're walking in carnality, things like joy and peace. But the reason so many Christians are living worldly lives is because they're still thinking worldly thoughts. Their minds are still conformed to this world's way of thinking because they have not allowed them to be transformed by the renewing that comes from the Word of God. Now, by saying that, I'm, I, that, that doesn't mean carnal Christians don't ever read the Bible or they never go to church. I don't think they do those things much or else they wouldn't be carnal. But I'm not saying carnal Christians don't read the Bible or don't go to Bible study once in a while. 
It simply means that the teaching of God's word is not being allowed to go from their heads to their hearts where it becomes a part of their core convictions and therefore living and powerful in its ability to radically transform their lives. Look, as a Christian, when you go to a Bible study and you hear the word of God taught, yes, it's entering into your mind. That's right. It's true. But then you should immediately internalize it. Bring it into your heart. Make it a part of the core values of your heart. How do you do that? First of all, by having a high view of Scripture. There's a lot of Christians that don't have a high view of Scripture. What does that mean? They don't, they, they say it's the Word of God. They may even believe the Bible is a special book. But they don't really believe it has the power to change their life. Do you realize that more Christians go to secular counselors and psychiatrists than to godly pastors when they have a real problem in their life? Those are weak, carnal I'm going to say if you ever go to a counselor, you're a weak Christian. But I would rather open God's word and let the wonderful counselor minister to my heart than to go to some secular professional who has the wisdom of the world, which James tells us is earthly, sensual, and demonic. But when you hear the word of God taught, if you have a high view of Scripture, you reverence that. It's the Word of God. And so as you're hearing it, it's entering into your mind through your ears. But if you're a godly person, you bring it right into your heart. And you say, God, this is how I want to live. Lord, I want to do this. I haven't been doing it very, very regularly in my life up to this point. But God, this is how I want to live. Please give me the grace to live like this. When you do that, and you listen to God's word with reverence and awe, that it is the word of the living God, and it enters into your mind through your eyes or your ears, you bring it right down into your heart. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit that already lives in your heart will take that word, coupled with that desire, and he will energize the word in your life where it will begin to give you victory over the sinful attitudes and things of this world. Folks, we are living in a very dark world, a very wicked world. We come in contact with vile things all day long. Some of those we invite into our lives. And some of those things that cost us because we're out in the world every day. But if you want to start living a victorious life, it starts with filling your mind with God's word, reverencing it, desiring with all your heart to want to live it out in your life. And the Holy Spirit, who knows your heart, will take that word and by the power of God will energize it and you'll begin to see fruit growing in your life because a godly heart is something that God will never turn away from. If we have a desire to do things that please him, he will make sure we have everything we need to do the things he wants us to do. 
we have an expression, don't we? Taking it to heart. Right? Taking it to heart, which refers to this very thing. Turn to James chapter 1. And let me read verses 21 and 2 again out of the NLT. The word coming into our minds, but we then take it to heart. James 1.21, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power, listen, to save your souls. Not just from hell, of course, if these folks were already Christians, many of them, but to save them from the godless thinking and activities of the world around them. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you are only fooling yourselves. Now this is all very important to us as Christians because most spiritual warfare takes place in the mind for control of your thoughts. Satan wants to control your thinking because if he can control the way you think, he can control the way you live. And so the devil wants to flood your mind with images and messages to destroy your relationship with God by keeping you brainwashed in his, the devil's way of thinking. Which again, James tells us is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Now, if he's successful, which means if you allow it, it will manifest itself in a love for the things of the world more than a love for the things of God. In fact, that becomes a kind of litmus test to find out where you are on the scale. On one end, it's a love for the world. The other far end is a love for God. Where am I along the scale? Well, that's a very important thing that we ask ourselves. How much am I allowing the devil to control my thinking? Well, what do you love more? God or the world? If you find yourself loving the world, you have to be honest. Honest self-examination is, is um, we are told in the scriptures to do that. Honestly evaluate yourself, first of all, to make sure you're, you're in the faith, you're a real, a real Christian. But where you are with the Lord at any given time. If you honestly evaluate your walk and your relationship with the Lord, if you find yourself loving the world and the things of the world more than your love for God, and how do you know that? Know that? Well, again, you have to ask yourself, what is consuming and controlling your life? In other words, what gets you up in the morning? What gets you out the door? What are you passionate about? Is it your career, your business, making money, something else? Or are you passionate about God and serving him? Now, you have to work a job. I'm not saying that. You know, you can, you can just serve God, uh, you know, all day long. I'm blessed. I can do that. But you, you guys have to work, right? And that's fine. That's, it's not wrong to have a job. But what we're talking about is that whatever your passion is, if it's a job or your career, great. But don't let it become more consuming than your love for God and your desire to serve him. Um. Let me say this, and I don't mean to be overly blunt. I have a tendency to be blunt at times, but, you know, 
if you determine, as you examine yourself honestly, if you determine that the love of the world is consuming you more than a love for God, it means you have become, listen, more of an instrument of the devil than of God in this fallen world. And Satan, at least for now, has won the battle for control of your life. That's why John tells us in his first epistle. Why don't you turn to 1 John 2. This is what John warned us about. In fact, it's what every writer of the New Testament warns us about. But here, John really summed it up, I think, pretty, pretty well. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. That's why it's imperative that we as Christians constantly be on guard as to what enters our minds. I mean, if you stay away from the more obvious ways, the devil will try to pollute your mind. Things like internet pornography, Facebook romances, TikTok videos, and even just what's on TV. If you stay away from that, if you're very selective in what you watch on TV also, well, then most of the then the most dangerous junk never gets into your mind in the first place. However, the internet isn't the only way Satan corrupts people's minds. There are many public grade schools, high schools, colleges, and universities that teach ungodly ideologies like naturalism, which is the foundation of revolution a godless system that was invented to explain everything apart from God. Check it out. Naturalism has become the reigning ideology of our day. All the greatest scientific and educational thinkers, unbelievers, all hold it up as being absolute truth. That everything came from nothing all by itself. And they laugh at you when you believe everything in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, how stupid. What do you believe? Everything came from nothing all by itself. Wonderful. You're a real, you're a real genius. Yeah, that, good luck with that. It takes less faith for me to believe in the beginning God created everything than to believe everything came from nothing all by itself. But go ahead. That's what you want to believe. But you have other things being taught. That used to, that might have been taught quietly, in secret, is now being shouted from the housetops. I'm talking about our, you know, educational system. Public schools, there's a lot of great teachers in public schools. But the public school system, for the most part, has been co-opted by the devil. He's in control. And now we see schools teaching, and not just high, high schools and colleges, Grade schools, elementary schools, teaching socialism and even communism. They're all teaching pro-LGBTQ doctrine, I know that. And now things like equity, critical race theory, gender 
fluidity, which means you can be any gender you want anytime you want. It's a fluid situation. But we also see this indoctrination of the devil coming from, of course, the movie industry. The Academy Awards are tonight. What a joke. Let's all destroy people's minds with our garbage, and now let's have a big celebration and give each other awards. Again, have good luck with that. But we see the movie industry, the music industry, and many other avenues and, and uh, venues that are promoting everything from sexual immorality to occultism to witchcraft, Eastern mysticism, you name it, it's out there now. But it's more than that, guys. Godly living is not just the absence of what is bad. It is also the presence of what is good. I'll read these to you. You can write down the references. Of course, you all know Philippians 4.8, where Paul said, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your what? Thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And the idea is then you will live a godly life. Because as a person thinks in their mind, so, so is he or she. And then Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ, the word of God, dwell in you richly in your hearts and in your minds, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Look, as you fill your mind with God's word, you begin to think like God. Which means you'll stop thinking like the world thinks. Before you got saved, if you picked up a novel, and it was a, a, a demonic plot or overtly sexual theme, as you were reading that novel, you were becoming one with the author's thoughts. You were being brought into his or her world. They were conforming your thinking. They were, they were, you know, and, and, and the more you read stuff like that, the more you begin to internalize it where it becomes kind of a core value, perversion, or demonic themes. But if you fill your mind with God's word, you begin to think like God thinks, which means you stop thinking like the world thinks. The result will be a renewed mind and ultimately a transformed Life, Even as Jesus said, cleanse the inside of the cup, it will overflow and cleanse the outside also. It always starts on the inside. That's where the new birth begins. Yes, it, the gospel enters into our minds, through our eyes and ears, but then as we um, think about it and think, yes, I think this is right. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sin. And you pray to receive him. Of course, at that moment, it gets internalized into your heart. And now the nature of God, 2 Peter 1.4, the nature of God is planted within you and begins to work its way in, in you in the way that you start thinking differently. Your values change. And then it begins to work its way out, out into your life. And you begin to change outwardly. You see the fruit of a changed life. We can all testify to this. How God has changed us. 
from the selfish people. Not We were not all the same. Not everybody, unbelievable, was a selfish person. But I know I was. I wasn't as bad as some, but I was worse than many. It was all about me. And right away I began to see changes in my heart. Things I didn't want to do anymore. You know that. Cleanse the inside of the cup. Get a new heart through Christ and it will work its way out and cleanse the outside of the cup, your outside life as well, right? But guys, listen. If you come to church and hear the Word of God taught, but you basically let it go in one ear and out the other, it's all I need to do is go to church, I finish that. That's all I need. Just go to church, hear the Word. But you basically let it go in one ear and out the other without any real desire to obey it, then it will do you no good. The Word of God, although living and powerful, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, will be rendered lifeless and powerless to change your life because you're not, you are not really serious about doing all that God's Word has said. Again, James 1, verses 21 and 2, but also something Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by many of the words that... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Which means you've got to be reading every word and thinking on every word and studying the whole word. So let me return, as we close, let me return to and restate what I said at the beginning of this message. The secret of having joy and everything else God wants to give us, peace and, and, uh, and everything else, right? Victory. But the secret of having joy in these other attributes in the Christian life starts in the mind with the way you think. Everything in the Christian life starts with the way you think about God's word and your willingness to feed on it every day and hide it in your heart. Then and only then will it transform your life. Guys, we are living in very dark and demonic times. You know that. Where the devil is trying to capture people's thinking like never before, especially young people who are the most open to new ideas and teachings. Maybe you saw this headline from last week, a few days ago. It appeared on my, in, uh, my online news services, but it was also in print. Of course, the, the title caught my eye, and I had to read the article. Here's the, here's the, the heading, the, the title. Dozens of girls hospitalized with anxiety after playing with Ouija boards. Oh, i got to read this. Here's part of it. 28 schoolgirls were hospitalized with anxiety attacks after allegedly playing with Ouija boards at their school in Galeris, Colombia. The girls reportedly suffered signs of fainting, anxiety, and other symptoms and were admitted to a hospital accompanied by parents and school faculty. Info on their diagnosis has not been released. The author concludes Ouija boards created in the U.S. in 1886 are often referred to as spirit boards or talking boards. They are believed to be a way for the living 
to communicate with the dead, end quote. People that get caught up in things like witchcraft, the occult, the New Age movement, and other metaphysical practices, they're not our enemies. Christians sometimes look down on these people. I mean, they're seekers. They don't know where the truth is. We have it. But often we're too busy hanging out with each other to give the truth of the gospel to somebody. And then we condemn them and put them down, not everyone, but we often do these things. When they get involved in these things, and they are taken over by the devil. You can read again 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 to 26. But these folks are not our enemies. Many of them young people. They're searching for truth and have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. But praise God that he is more powerful than the devil, that light is more powerful than darkness, and praise God that his truth is always more powerful than Satan's lies. God's word is and always has been the only thing that can set people free from the power of the devil and give them a new life in Christ. I want to show you a six-minute video to end. I don't ever do this, but this video caught my attention. It's about a young woman named Jenny. I'll let her tell her testimony, but she went from being a witch to a worship leader. I think it's worth your six minutes. Let's put it on. Things were happening. I was moving things. I would go up to a drawer, and before my hand would even touch it, the drawer would go and open. Jenny Weaver always thought dabbling in witchcraft was harmless fun, until she discovered something much more sinister. Lights would bust and break when we would start talking about the demonic realm. Glass fall all over us. Jenny grew up on Florida's Gulf Coast with seven siblings. Her home was dominated by abusive parents who handed out punishment for the slightest offense. It wasn't much better at their church that didn't teach about a loving father, but a vengeful, angry God ready to condemn sinners to hell. I was always thinking, God's disappointed in me. God's upset. So it was really filled with shame and condemnation. Then her father walked out leaving 13-year-old Jenny, her siblings, and their mom destitute. So I must not even be worthy enough to be loved, to be thought of, to be cared for. You shouldn't even be alive. Why are you even here? It'd be better off if you just killed yourself. Feeling powerless and unloved, Jenny started cutting and smoking pot. Then she saw a movie about teen witches that showed her a way to take charge of her life. Soon, she was poring over books about witchcraft, Wicca, and the occult, and trying spells with her friends. Wiccan religion is do what you want, but do no one any harm. It's kind of like, oh, it's the good witch. I felt like I had power, and so I'm looking at this like, oh, this is the most amazing thing ever. But that power and control were only an illusion because the turmoil in Jenny's home and within herself remained. At 17, after a fight with her mom, Jenny ran away and dropped out of school. 
Bouncing between friends' homes and drug houses over the coming years, she got into harder drugs, sometimes blacking out for days. And it was so broken and so hurting all the time that I engaged in just the craziest things you could imagine and just gave, my, gave myself away to whoever, whenever, whatever. It didn't matter. Then she moved in with a girl who came from a family of witches. Her new friend showed her the things she thought were harmless and fun opened the door to a dark, sinister, and very frightening world Jenny only thought existed in books and movies. You would feel demon spirits literally walking by you like a human being was walking by you, touching you, scraping the walls. I would hear, I'm gonna choke you out until you die. I'm going to take your life all the time, constantly tormented. Terrified, she stopped practicing witchcraft, but the demon of addiction would continue to haunt and torment her for years to come. I would just say, if I just die now, I just die now. And, and I would just lay there and go, I, I just hope I just die. I hope these drugs, they, these are the ones that just take me out this time. At 26, she was living with her boyfriend, Stephen, and hopelessly addicted to meth. Then she got pregnant. One day, seeing no hope for her or her baby's future. I just fell on my knees and I screamed out as loud as I possibly could, God, help me! And it was like the loudest, longest scream. I remember just being like, oh, please. And I didn't see lightning, I didn't see any of that, but I felt a peace. And that was the first time I felt the Lord saying to me in my heart, my heart, I'm gonna help you, I'm gonna help you. Jenny says that help came in an unexpected way. Two days later, she was arrested, sent to jail, and ordered to complete a drug treatment program. There, she began to hear about a different God, a heavenly Father who was loving, merciful, and ready to forgive through His Son, Jesus Christ. One night, Jenny whispered a prayer. I just cried and I said, God, I, I just want you to help me. I really want to love people, but there was such a hardness and I just asked the Lord to take it. And I said, God, I'm just going to give you my life today. And I surrendered to the Lord. And I knew that everything that I had gone through, everything that I had done had been forgiven. And when, when Jesus did that for me, it changed everything. Everybody that had threw me away, he, he came and he healed all that. The day of her release, Jenny gave birth to a healthy baby girl, Cameron. Later, Stephen also got clean and accepted Christ and the couple married in 2013. But a part of Jenny's past wasn't letting go. And for a few years, she still sensed a dark presence in her life. Then at a deliverance service at church, a woman led her in prayer to renounce witchcraft. I would say, I renounce. And if I would try to say it at first, it was like, Whoa, and they wouldn't let me. It was like my mouth was, I couldn't even get the words. And they would say, we're not, we're not leaving. No, and they would curse and spit. It was very, very, very crazy. Finally. I knew there was a release. I could tell, I could feel it. I knew, I was like, okay, I'm free. They're gone, they're gone. And I was just, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. The past far behind her, Jenny went on to develop a close relationship with her mom. She was also able to reconcile with her dad a few months before he passed away. 
Today, Jenny is a homeschool mom, entrepreneur, and worship leader, sharing her music and her passion for the Lord. Jesus came running after me when I cursed at him, when I literally said the worst kind of words you could imagine at God. And the whole time him calling my name saying, no, she's my daughter. I'm coming after her. I'm wondering how many Jennies are out there right now or young men, the same kind of testimony, looking for some meaning for life, but winding up in drugs or the occult, witchcraft. We have the answer. We have the cure. But if we're going to only hang out with each other, and not get out there and begin to share with people the answer for life, which is Jesus Christ. These kids are going to keep going to all kinds of other, the way, you know, there is a way into a person that they think is right, but in the end thereof, it's the way of death. The devil is going to keep sending them down the wrong path. My prayer is that God is going to start bringing young people to our church, and us the young people. We have to be open. We have to, you know, many of you have seen the Jesus Revolution movie. We just saw it a couple weeks ago. And in the movie, you saw a little glimpse. In fact, the reproducers, that book we're offering on our website, which is free, tells the whole story. But when God began to work in the hippies and they started coming to this little country church called Calvary Chapel, they, they went to other churches, many of them, but they were turned away until they would cut their hair, change, I guess put on a three-piece suit if you're a young guy, a dress that went down to the ankles for a young lady or something like that. And when you get yourself all cleaned up, come on back. Well, they didn't want to do that. They wanted, this was who they were. And so Calvary Chapel started to open their doors to these kids, just like they were. Long hair, barefoot, bell-bottoms. A lot of the people at that Calvary couldn't handle it, and they left. But you had a lot that stayed, a lot that had hearts big enough to reach out to these kids. May God give us hearts big enough, right? I'll close with this. My son was talking to me a few months ago about his church in Arizona, which is a Calvary. And um, one day a guy walked in wearing a dress. He was a man, but identified as a woman. And he wore the jewelry and he had the makeup on and the dress and he talked feminine. It's a little uncomfortable for a lot of Christians to go through that, right? But to their credit, the elders loved him. They didn't tell him, get out until you change your clothes and whatever. They loved him. They, he started to go to Bible study. And my son said, an interesting thing began to happen, Dad. After a few weeks, he stopped talking like a woman. He stopped wearing the dress. And we were able to lead him to the Lord. The truth was setting him free. 
And we need to understand that. We say, God, bring revival. And then when revival comes to our doors, oh, now I don't want them here. Somewhere else, not here, God. I can't be sitting next to a guy with a dress on. Are we, are we going to be open to what God's going to want to do? What he might want to do? So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us, that you've opened our eyes to your truth, that we are your children. And Lord, we ask for your grace to love others with your love, the love you loved us with. That, Lord, the young men and women who are involved in the occult or homosexuality or the gay lifestyle or, uh, Lord, um, you know, transgenderism or any one of a number of things that we are repulsed by, but yet you died for these people. And we need to open our arms to them. By your grace, fill us with your agape love, Lord, that we would never shut our doors to anyone seeking to know you. Give us supernatural love for these folks that we could wrap our arms around them and say with all of our heart and really mean it, we're glad you're here. I've been praying for you to come. And I thank God you're here. Lord, give us grace. Give us your agape love in these last days and in this dark world, that we can be a light, a pillar of love to a, a lost and unloved generation. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name.